0: I invite you to take a seat this morning and turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 13, working through the series Broken Heroes, Judges chapter 13, looking at chapters 13 to 16 this morning. And uh, we're gonna uh, hear about a man named Samson of which we know so well. One of the most well-known stories in the book of Judges. Takes up four chapters in Judges. Uh, but we're gonna study this a little deeper and get all the nuances, all the ins and the outs so that we can learn about how, who God is but how we live in light of him. If you don't have a Bible, please stick your hand up. One of our ushers would be happy to give you a copy of God's word. We encourage you to follow along. And if you don't have one at home, please uh, take it home with you today that you might know God through his word. Judges chapter 13, if you look at the little subtitle here, it's the birth of Samson. Samson, one of the most well known stories in Judges. Samson, the quintessential hero, the one that we finally get to a place in this book where we're like, finally, we get a real hero. Everyone else, we see them all broken and all messed up. Samson's like, he's like the the All American, the GQ. He's the strong, courageous, bold, brave. He's the one that that fits the hero suit so well. We think, finally, we have a real hero. One that we can look up to and one that we can emulate, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. As physically strong as Samson is, the strongest man that maybe ever lived, he was also the weakest of the judges, for sure, morally weakest of the judges that we come up against in the text. And if we read the... The, the story of Samson, you like I will be thinking like, why in the world is this guy in the Bible? But yet we'll see through the life of Samson the glory of God so clearly. We'll see the providence of God through the life of Samson. We'll see the power of God through the life of Samson. We'll see the glory of God through the life of Samson. And ultimately, here's what we learn through Samson. When, when I am at my worst... God is at his best. Don't we need to hear that again this morning? When I am at my worst, God is at his best. And so, buckle up. Let me give you a few. Just a quick reminder of the stories, chapter by chapter today, a quick overview of Samson. Then we're just going to dive into some practical applications and implications uh, for our lives. Here's the story of St- Samson, the most broken hero of them all. And yet this, chapter 13, he was anointed by God. The most broken, messed up hero, but yet he was anointed by God. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. And the people of Israel, again, no surprise to us, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years, and so we see the same cycle happening again here. Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. I love this phrase uh, for this reason because it shows us the total depravity of the human heart. Notice it doesn't say Israel did what was evil in their eyes. Probably at this point in their lives, their moral compass was so backwards, they thought everything they are doing was good and right and somehow pleasing to God, and yet it was evil in the eyes of who? The only one that matters? Who is it evil in the eyes of? The Lord. This whole idea of truth is relative today. Well, as long as I feel it, it feels good to me, it must be right. Wrong. Israel that was evil in the eyes of the Lord, so he disciplines them again and sends them. He sends them into uh, captivity, this time at the hand of the, Palis- the Philistines for uh, 40 years. Uh, notice this. The human heart can be so depraved sometimes that even, even when we think we're doing right, we're doing Wrong. Isn't it true that even our best days, our grandest intentions, and our purest desires are tainted by sin? At this point, Israel's totally given themselves to sin. They're totally giving themselves over to sin. They're loving their sin. And yet, notice what happens next. They didn't cry out to the Lord this time. Notice how many times they come to their senses like, okay, God save us. They were so far gone, they didn't have any, any understanding that they needed saving from God. But yet, look what God does. God steps in anyways and rescues his kids again, even without their pleas. That's, that's the glory of God, Amen. God steps in again, this time, he picks a family, this insignificant, impotent, not the family you'd think he'd choose, family to rescue his people. Look at verse 2, there's a certain man of Zorah in the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. This is, this is not a good thing in, in, in the Bible times. This was seen as, children were seen as a badge of significance, a band of honor for the, for the woman. And so this is a family that's just like, they're really, they're truly nothing. And yet God says, the angel of the Lord comes to this woman who's unnamed. That's how insignificant she is. She's unnamed. angel of the Lord appears to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren. She's probably thinking, okay, like rub it in, God. Really? Really rub it in. And you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Notice how in all the other times God rescues, he actually says, and the angel of the Lord comes and says, and, and I'm going to send you a deliverer. He didn't even say that this time. He just says this, and I will, you will conceive and bear a son. And then he says, verse 4, he gives her all these, all these restrictions, all these things that she should and shouldn't do, almost like the physician's like, now, honey, you're having a baby. You probably shouldn't eat soft cheese anymore, and you should probably stay away from the alcohol. But there's greater significance in that. Look at the list. It's not just a be careful thing. It's, therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. He says it twice. Why twice? The practice, is so inconceivable that she'd conceive. He needs to say it. Like, almost like a believe it, you're going to have a son. And don't drink any alcohol. No ratio shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is, this is remarkable. He's, he's really setting this woman up to make sure that herself and her son are set apart by God from the beginning to the end. This idea of him being a Nazarene is not just like he's gonna, he's gonna be a Christian. That's not it. The Nazarites, as we learn from Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21, they, have, they took temporary vows uh, at a time, a specific time, to, to kind of set themselves apart for God's help during a crucial time in their history. And it was a sign that they were gonna be looking to God with great intensity and great focus. And so it was a certain time of life where they'd be like, you know what, for this season of life, we're gonna have no, no alcohol, no bars, no barbers, and no morgues. No alcohol and, and no haircuts because we're just, we're, just we're just gonna put all our attention on God for this season and no morgues. we're gonna be cleanly like the priest. We're gonna cleanse ourselves like the priest. We're not gonna come in touch with any, anything un, unholy or, or anything dead and, and this is a big deal. This is Samson's lifelong calling. Most Nazarites had a vow for a certain time. This is Samson's lifelong calling to be separated, set apart for the Lord. It's important. It's important to the story that we get this first introduction to Samson, because we'll see how Samson actually didn't live up to any of his Nazarite calling and vows at all. He actually did everything opposite of what God called him to do, and yet God still used him. This is so significant of course you can imagine if you're a barren woman and you've just been told news you're going to bear a son he's going to save his people he's going to be a nazareth she runs and tells her husband her husband's like for real like if this is for real go get I'm just summarizing for you go get that guy she's like I don't know who he was or what he where he came from but I know this he was very awesome is what she says she's like well go get him If this is true, which I believe it is, I want to know, like, how are we going to raise this kid? What are we going to do? He goes and gets, so he calls out to God, says, God, can you bring the guy back? His wife goes out in a field. The angel meets her. She says, can I bring you to introduce you to my husband? angel says, sure, why don't we introduce you to my husband? had a little powwow. They had a little family meeting of which Manoah says, tell me all the good things that you're going to do through my son. Tell me how to raise him. All the angel says again is, is like, make sure he's set apart for the Lord, basically. So we get down to verse 15 and, and Manoah says, well, can, we, can you stay for dinner? I got a goat. can you stay for dinner? And the angel's like, I got a better idea. Angel probably at this point we're understanding is actually a, a Jesus Christ coming before Jesus Christ in person. Angel's like, why don't you save the dinner thing? Why don't you offer that goat as a sacrifice to the Lord? Manoah offers the goat as a sacrifice to the Lord. The the flames go up from that altar, and all of a sudden the angel goes up with it. And all of a sudden, Manoah's like us, bit of a dense guy. He's like, I think we just saw God. (laughs) Oh no, he says in 22, like, we're gonna die. But like every good wife, she's like, no, no, stupid. (laughs) We're not gonna die. God just gave us a big announcement. He just accepted our sacrifice, like, chill out. It's all good. God's for us, not against us. Sure enough, like most of our wives, she was right. And lo and behold, a blessed, bouncing baby boy named Samson was born, and they gave him the name Samson, which means little son. S-U-N, probably a foreshadowing, truly a foreshadowing of the greater son, S-O-N, that was going to come. Many similarities, but many differences as we see. Deliverance, ultimately, at the end of chapter 13, deliverance is coming. Chapter 14, we see Samson is not just anointed by God, he's an independent man by character. Chapter 14, we see this right to the end. But this is, this is one messed up hero. He's called by God, anointed by God. It's so clear that this is of God and yet he is one independent dude. Samson was a guy's guy who marched to the beat of his own drum. How do we know this? Because look what he does first and foremost, 14 verse one. Samson went down to Timnah. This is in the heart of the Philistine country, probably the capital of Philistine. He goes marching right into the enemy territory. He's pretty bold and confident, don't you think? And while he's there though, one of the Philistine fillies catches his attention finds this woman and like most guys eyes bloop, bloop, popping out of his head and he's like dad dad season of arranged marriages that's the one you get for me his mom and dad are like Samson are you sure why don't you think that again like this is this is not of god you're set apart for god this is this woman comes from the land of the uncircumcised philistines you're like why does that have to bring the uncircumcision to that and they're like can't you find a pretty girl in our country like there's a lot of pretty girls that are israelites Reality being the uncircumcised part means that, that all God's people back in this time were circumcised as an outward reflection of an inward reality, where God's people We have a covenant relationship with God were set apart for God, and they circumcised the men to show that this is true. And so his parents weren't saying it's not good to interrace race marry, they're saying the interfaith marriage is just not a wise idea, it's not of God you think then that Samson would be like, oh, wow, mom and dad are so wise. Well, why don't I just like, listen to them? Instead, he's like, no, 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 no dad, uh, I want that one. She's mine. Look what it says here in verse three, end of verse three, because she is right in whose eyes? Whose eyes, whose eyes? My eyes, Samson said. That's the key to this. It's right in my eyes. Look at verse four, though. His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord. And you're like, how can this be from the Lord? For he was seeking opportunity against the Philistines. Who was Samson? No, God was. This is, this, this is not like God saying, okay, you can sin this time because I have a bigger plan. No, this is, this is actually of the Lord. And that God's like, okay, I'm going to let this guy be a bozo and walk by his own silly, fleshly desires. But I'm going to use this and turn this around for good. So don't take this as God going like, well, it's okay, whatever you do, just do it. And I'll, no, 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 that's not it. God's like, okay, let him go. Let him be a foolish man. But I'm going to redeem this. I'm going to redeem this. So Samson goes down, verse five, to get his new wife, and as he's going, he comes. A lion comes rushing up against him. This is the first time, verse six of this fifteen. We see the fourteen. We see the spirit of the Lord come in. This lion's charging him, and the spirit of the Lord comes on him. Notice where his strength comes from. It's actually not from Samson. He's going to think it's from him, but it's not from Samson at no. all. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Remember, the spirit of the Lord came upon people in the Old Testament to confirm that they were of God and affirm their calling for his for his purposes. Spirit of the Lord rushes in, Samson like rips this lion to shreds with his bare hands. That's a pretty strong fella. He's all proud of himself, he goes on his way, coming back the next few days later, he comes back and finds that in this, in this dead lion's carcass now, there's a, honey, there's a honeybee hive. Being starving, he reaches in and scoops up some honey. Remember the Nazarite vow? Remember the Nazarite vow? Don't touch dead carcasses, he doesn't care. All he's thinking about is Who? I'm just thinking about myself now, and I'm hungry, and this looks good. That's just disgusting, by the way. Out of a dead carcass, who does that? Samson doesn't even tell his parents. He's like, "I found some honey." They're thinking, oh, "This is fantastic." By the way, it's from a dead carcass. Didn't say that part. What a jerk. Parents then maybe even overseeing their their Nazarite vow by accident. Samson, he's doing his own thing. He then calls a party. Verse 10, he calls a party and he's gonna have a bachelor party. She invites 30 friends from the Philistine camp and, and he's, uh, again, breaking another Nazarite vow. He's got like food. He's got, he's got alcohol there. How do I know that? Because that word in the, in the original language is, includes food and alcohol. And so he's breaking his vows all over the place. And he's got, he's got games going on. He's got prizes and everything. And so he gets up and says, I got a riddle for you. I got a riddle for you. And, and if you can solve this riddle, these 30 guys, I'll give you new suits. If you can't solve it, you give me 30 new suits. Look at his riddle, verse 14. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Seven days, and you can, you saw this in seven days, and I'll give you 30 suits. You know, three days later, they're all frustrated, so they go to his fiancee, and they're like, they threaten her, like, you know, get it out of him, get it out of him. And so she pulls a line that most women pull. If you really love me, if you really love me, will you tell me the answer to the riddle? Samson's so, like, so weak. Tells her the answer. The guys come back, give him the answer. He gets all ticked. This is, you can read this in the text. He gets all ticked. He actually goes into the town, finds 30 other men, kills them, steals their clothes, gives the 30, pays his debt with 30 other guys' clothes that he just killed, and then he goes off to his dad's house storming mad like a little baby. As he's doing that, the woman's fiancé's father gives him to the best man, gives her to the best man because she thinks Samson hates her. And you're like, this isn't the Bible? This is like a soap opera. This is a... Read it for yourself. I'm not making stuff up. That's why I have you open your Bibles to read. Just, just get this from this, this far in the story. Samson is like doing his thing, he doesn't care about anybody or anything else. And you wonder, how can God bless that? How can God bless that? This whole, as long as it feels right, I'm, I'm down with it mentality. God doesn't bless it. I guarantee you of that. And just like it won't go anywhere good for Samson, it won't go anywhere good for you if you decide to live your life by that same mantra. Chapters 15 and 16, we see Samson this, impulsive by nature. He's anointed by God, he's independent in character, but he's so impulsive by nature. So as the story goes, after some days, look at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, at the time of the wheat harvest, so a little time later, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. So what he's thinking is like, oh man, I really messed up. I better get a gift for my wife. So instead of flowers, he brings a goat. <laughs> Apparently that was a good thing back then. And uh, as he's coming, the father-in-law says, oh, but Samson, I thought you hated my daughter, so I gave her to be your best ma- with your best man. And Samson is just a livid again. He's got a short fuse, he's a temper guy. And so he's thinking, okay, now, now I'm really angry. Now I really have some reason to come after these Philistines. And so what he does, he goes and finds 300 foxes, or quite possibly jackals, because the same word is used in the original language, fox and jackal, same word used. And to track down 300 foxes is pretty difficult. Jackals, will travel in packs, and probably easier to Probably not for you and I, easy to catch anything, but for Samson, easy to catch a jackal. He grabs some jackals, he actually puts them in pairs, ties their, their, their tails together with a torch in between, lights them on fire and lets these like 150 pairs of, of, of foxes slash jackals run through the wilderness, burning down vineyards and orchards and fields and everything. And what an idiot, don't you think? Like, like where's the godliness in this? Such chaos he caused that his wife and her father-in-law were burned at the stake because of his actions. Also caused wildfire with the Philistines and the Israel, too. Israel too. Israel, Israeli guys were thinking, oh man, the Philistines are gonna come after us and kill us because of this one lone ranger. And so you get to verse 11 of 15, and 3,000 of his own men tracked him down, tied him up with new ropes, and turned, turned him into the Philistine authorities. In other words, like they thought they needed 3,000 guys to capture one. I guarantee you, anyone who wants to come after me, they're going to bring one or two guys. That's it. That's all they're going to need. And a big stick and probably big threats, and I cower in a corner. 3,000 guys come after him. They tie him up, and yet, and yet we see, again, God's with him, even though he has no understanding of that at this point. Um, look at this. Uh, God comes over him again, and he melts the ropes, basically, off his arms in in 14. Um, verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and the bonds melted off his hands. Verse 15, he finds a fresh jawbone. Again, something unclean, but he doesn't care. We get this by now. He grabs a fresh jawbone, and he, Texas, you know, Walker, Texas Ranger for you old people style. (laughs) Like he single-handedly defeats a 1,000 people, and he's so stinking arrogant, he actually writes a song about it, Look at that verse 16, and with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. He makes a song about it and prances on his merry way. Interesting, Bill MacDonald, his commentary, points out that verse 16 is a play on words in the original languages, and basically what he's saying here, so, um, so confident is Samson, he's basically saying, with the jawbone of an ass, I assassinated them. What a smart aleck, don't you think? And after all this, verse 18, here's the first interaction he has with with God. Verse 18. I thought this was interesting. Nothing about God to this point. And verse 18, after he beats up a thousand guys and kills them, he was very thirsty, called upon the Lord. Oh, he's calling upon the Lord. This must be good. And you know what he says? You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And you're like, what? What? So, of course, God has purposes, and so God opens up a natural spring for him. He revives himself and refreshes himself, and um, chapter 15 ends with, therefore, the name of the, the name of this place was called uh, En-Hakor, uh, it is at Lehi to this day, and that may, name really means the place of the jawbone, and he judged Israel in the last days of the Philistines, uh, 20 years, so 40 years in captivity, he's now judging for 20 years, and, uh, I think he's learned some lessons by now. Chapter 16, he has learned absolutely nothing. As you study this text again, chapter 16 is the only chapter where there is no mention at all of the spirit of God with this guy. Not only was he impulsive and he had a wicked temper and all kinds of things, he was promiscuous times 10. And so look at the first thing he does in chapter 16 after he wins all these things. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. I thought this guy was call of God. Before you think this is the way we should live, this is not the way we should live. So because you see this prostitute, the Gazites are like, oh man, this is our chance to take him down when he has his pants down and this prostitute. And yet Samson's smarter than that. He wakes up at midnight and picks up the whole city gates and marches them 60 kilometers to the outside of town. So all these guys who are gonna capture him. are going like, ha he's picking up the city gates. This is like a two story uh, solid structure that no single person could pick up. So they're watching him going like, maybe we shouldn't mess with that guy. Maybe we should just tiptoe back to our tents and go on our merry way. So Samson gets outside of town, and that's all we know of that story. We just know that he's just being Samson, which is not a good thing. I hope you're picking up on that by now. Next thing we know, he's hooking up with a woman here in verse 4 named Delilah. Delilah, there's a reason why we don't see too many Delilahs today, because Delilah means languishing or lovelorn or seductive. Delilah captures his heart. Noticing women are his weakness. And somehow in this whole thing, she gets bribed with 1,100 pieces of silver. And Philistines come to her and say, Hey, man, if we can overpower this guy, if you can find out a secret, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver, which is today roughly $90,000. That's a big deal. So she's in it for herself, too. And so she says, uh, Puts on the women's charm, gets the eyelashes flashing, you know. And she's like, Samson, Samson, can you tell me the secret to your strength? Samson tells her one story and just to fool her, she realizes he's just playing with her. Tells her, ask awesome him again, tells her another story. She's just, he's just playing with her. Third time, she tells her one more story and finally she gets mad and she pulls the same line the other woman pulled, his, his fiance pulled. And she's like, If you really love me, Samson, and you think he's heard this story before. He's not going to fall for it this time, is he? Look how weak he is. He's like, Okay, all right, I'll tell you. It's my hair. It's actually the hair. Probably showing us he really didn't believe that because he wouldn't have told her if he really believed it. He really thought it was all about him. He's so cocky by now, he goes to sleep on Delilah's lap. Look at verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees and, he, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him and his strength left him. Notice this, his strength left him. Where was his strength all along? They didn't even realize his strength was in God. And she said this, the Philistines are coming. The Philistines are coming, basically, in their little kids' books. And he woke from his sleep, and he's like, I will go out as at other times, and I will shake myself free, so cocky. But he did not know that, look at this, the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Basically, they come, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you're done, buddy. Can't see anymore. You can work as hard as you want here, like working a mill grind and just doing his thing. You don't have to see to work a mill grind. And he's, he's now in captivity, destitute and strengthless. And this is the point where he finally comes to his senses. This is the point where he finally realizes that, oh my goodness, I am really a goofball. Look at verse 28. Well, Before that, before that, I missed part of the story here, before that, as he's milling in the in the mill Philistines call him up for this big banquet they're having to celebrate that they captured him. They have 3,000 of their dignitaries in a room celebrating with Dagon, one of their chief gods, thinking they're they're praising Dagon, looking, we beat our enemies, we beat our enemies. They call up Samson, do a song and dance. Let's just put him up on the stage, like naked and blind and weak. And let's just make fun of him and laugh it all up. Let's laugh it all up, believing that Dagon had actually won this war, the god of fertility and the god of of, uh, uh, produce. And so... At the height of shame, Samson finds at the front of all of his enemies being laughed at and made fun of. He finally, verse 28, calls out to God. verse 28, look what he says. This is the only good thing Samson does in these four chapters. The only good thing, right here, right here. You gotta take notice. If it's the only good thing he does in these four chapters, then Samson called to the Lord and said, and you're probably thinking like me, like, why would you even bother calling to the Lord at this time? He's surely not gonna listen to you, you faithless, futile, sinful, cocky human being, and yet look what he says. Oh God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Meanwhile, back in verse 22, we learn that his hair had begun to grow, so this is sometime after, and so the Philistines really didn't, didn't even believe it was because of God or his hair. They thought it was because of them, and as the story goes, we know this part well. Samson puts his hands between the two pillars And he prays this prayer, God, in one last hour of power, gives him strength to like push it down. Even a little later, he says, and God, just let me die with them. Just let me die with them. And God answers that prayer for sure, because sometimes God answers the prayers that we need answered. He pushed the pillars down, 3,000 people die, including himself. And he defeats the Philistines and kills more people in that one one act of God's strength than all the others in all his life combined. And he solidifies himself as one of the strongest men that ever lived and one of the men that God has cho- had chosen to use for his purposes. Wow. God used this guy to deliver his people? It's different than the little kids version, isn't it? The kids stories? Where all kids like, I want to be like Samson. Samson's not the kind of guy you want your daughter to marry or your son to be like. Like I read this and I'm like, wow, 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 wow. Like God's not supposed to work like this. God's supposed to work in the holy people, the people who are praying a lot, the people who are who are, you know, super. Set. Isn't that the way you think too? I read this and I think, what in the world? How do, how do we even see anything good in this? Well, let me remind you of this in the scriptures, brothers and sisters. There's two types of examples throughout the Bible. There's good examples and there's... And Samson is on the bad side of that example. So Samson's not a story that we aim to like, let's live our life like Samson. Samson's actually a warning to us and Samson actually shows us how to not live our lives for the glory of God. We see a lot of good life lessons in Samson, but we also see a lot of good God lessons in Samson. Let me start with the life lessons that we learn in the life of Samson. Number one is this. It's pretty plain and simple, I think. One messed up hero shows me this, shows me that my arrogance Truly will crush me. My arrogance will crush me. What was Samson's chief sin throughout the whole four chapters of this book? I propose it's arrogance, it's pride. Samson was on Samson's page and nobody else's page. Notice this Samson ignored God from start to finish. He was deaf to God's commands, he was blind to God's ways, and he was oblivious to God's power. Samson lived for his own pleasure, took matters into his own hands, and he even falsely believed that his successes were of his own accord. Oh my goodness, doesn't it start to get close to home? Doesn't it sound like our tendency so often? Humble, 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 humble comes off our lips, but pride, 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 pride wells up in our hearts. How easy it is for all of us to live like Samson. We look at that one guy, Samson, 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 Samson. And it's easy for us to also live our lives deaf to the commands of God, blind to the ways of God, oblivious to the power of God, living by our own pleasures, living by the mantra of whatever seems right to me, I'm going to live. Notice how arrogant from start to finish Samson is. First of all, Samson didn't listen to his parents at all. I'm sure Samson's dad relayed the story a few times, Manoah, of the angel and how amazing it is. Like, if that's my kid, like, I'm telling him that story a few times when he's growing up. Like, you're set apart, son. You're special. Like, God has his hand upon you. Notice the first thing Samson does when his parents say, yeah, Samson, you probably shouldn't marry that girl. Samson's like, done with you, mom and dad. Like, I'm out. Like, I don't have to listen to your authority. This isn't a big deal. We kind of minimize this today, but we shouldn't. But it was a big deal back then. You spurn your father's authority back in Bible days, and you could be put out of camp and maybe even like put to death for that. Like, that's just a big deal. Samson, I don't care. It's right in my eyes. It's my life. I'm gonna do it. He's just stinking arrogant. Almost sounds like a typical teenager sometimes, doesn't it? I don't say this glibly because I was one one day, and I still feel like some days I am a typical stubborn teenager. Think I know best. I'm going to do what I think's right. I'm not going to listen to anyone, including my parents. Can I just encourage you young people here today that are in, still living in your parents' roof, and maybe you're out of your parents' roof, but you just don't decide that you know better than your parents. Like, that's just a bad plan. It's not God honoring. It's not gonna lead you anywhere good, even though it might feel right for the moment. The Bible tells us over and over that the, the, the true way to live, the humble way to live, Ephesians 6, 2, Exodus 20, 12, both Old and New Testament, is to honor our moms and dads. Our parents know better than we think. This is just for the young people today. Your parents know better than you th- than you think they do. I know they're not cool anymore. I know your dad's wears socks with his sandals and your mom like, dresses and all kinds of weird things and they're outdated, they're old-fashioned, I get that. But let me tell you this, like, learn from Samson. Listen to your parents. Young people, Like, really look up here, young people. Your parents, you can just like tone out, tone out for a few minutes. Just let me speak to your kids. Listen to your parents. They, they love you, they care for you, they warn you. You know why? Because they know you're gonna do things that are dumb. And they're trying to save you from doing the Dumbest things that you are gonna do anyways, probably. But the more you listen to them, you can save yourself from a lot of heartache and a lot of toil and a lot of stress and a lot of struggle. Look how that marriage ended up for, look how the marriage ended up for Samson. Oh yeah, it didn't. What we read, he might not even spent a wife, a night with his wife. I just wanna tell you this, learn this from Samson, like, Don't let your arrogance ruin your relationship with your parents. Don't let your arrogance take you on paths that your parents know aren't good for you. Honor your mom and your dad. That's for the young people. For us older people, I think we learned something even even bigger than that. Uh, We learned that, that Samson just chose to disregard God totally, he left him behind. We see this throughout the whole book. He married a Philistine. He touched a dead lion carcass, grabbed the jawbone of a donkey. He gave away his haircut secret. He was murderous. He was revengeful. He was vengeful. Why is that? Because I think he left God behind a long time ago. A long time ago. When he finally did speak to God, there's a whole lot more wine in that conversation than good good dialogue with the Lord. Even though Samson seemed to prosper by God's grace, notice this, in the end, he made an absolute train wreck of his life. The same thing we do every time we choose to make decisions that we know are not of the Lord, but we're gonna do our own thing anyways. don't pretend that's not you this morning, that's me too. Well more spiritual than that, Pastor. You're not more spiritual than that. Every time you choose, you know what's right. You know the, the right integ- thing of integrity to do. You know the right business decision to make. You know the right, the right uh, word that should be spoken. You choose, chose, choose not to do that. You're actually not, you're not doing yourself any favors. You're, not, you're, not, you're actually living in independence. You're actually choosing for yourself a path, a trajectory that's actually going to wander away from God and ultimately going to train wreck your life. Think of Samson's life. Samson's life, blown marriage. No, 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 no speaking of any friends to speak in this passage. A lot of enemies came after him, it seems, by the thousands. He lost favor of the Lord. The Spirit of God left him, and he lost everything dear, leaving him empty with nothing, absolutely nothing to show for his life. Ultimately, God accomplished his purposes, but he lost his life in the process. God allowed him to walk this life of pride, and then his pride sunk him. I believe if we study Samson, as we study the Old and New Testament, that we will find ourselves in the exact same place if we choose to leave God behind. That's just pure arrogance. It's a temptation for us daily. But it's pure arrogance. This is some verses in the Bible. Psalm 53, one. We might not say this off of our lips, but how many times do we say this really in our hearts and our actions? The fool says in his heart, There is no God. How about Hosea 4, 6? God says this, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge and a rejection of it. This isn't like knowledge of the word, this is God's knowledge. I'm telling you this because A, it's in God's word, and B, I love you enough to tell you the truth. This is what it says in 1 Peter 5. 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does he do? He stands opposed to the proud. The self-made man or woman—the person who's going to do their thing regardless of what God thinks or says or does—God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Listen to John thirteen seventeen: You are blessed if you know and you do God's word. Here's what Samson teaches us: It matters how we live our lives. Choose to disregard God, you will reap all the consequences of that. Choose to follow God, you will reap all the blessings of that. Yeah, so God used the guy, so he's known as a strong man, but who cares? Who cares? He lived a meaningless, empty, futile life. Choose to follow God, and you'll find the opposite. You'll find joy, you'll find blessing, you'll find meaning, you'll find fulfillment, you'll find the life that God has Plan for you, you actually find the spirit of the Lord, the presence of God, not just in little segments, but throughout your whole life. And what can can replace that in our lives, brothers and sisters? If you learn anything from Samson, learn this. Our arrogance will crush us. Also learn this. My lusts will devour me. This gets a little awkward, it gets to the point, but you can't not preach this text without noticing this, that one of Samson's biggest detriments is that his sex drive drove his life. His sex drive drove his life. His self-gratifying lifestyle led him down dark paths. Think about it, from a failed marriage to a hooker to a lover to bondage to end up being a spectacle in front of the universe. One commentator says that Most likely Samson was a sex addict, sex crazed. I'm saying he's a cocky playboy to say the least. And you know what Samson shows us? Samson actually represents Israel's spiritual condition at the time, living in its own lustful desires, allowing lust to control the nation, ultimately leading to their desolation and their death. I don't think it's just Samson that falls into this trap. I look around today and I see this whole sex craze culture we live in with all the messages. What's the message? If you are sexually satisfied, you will be happy, untrue. Almost like all that we are is sexual beings. Yes, we are sexual beings, but sex, our sexuality is not our identity. This message that if I'm sexually satisfied, then I'm satisfied in everything else. That's just not true. Look where it led Samson. And so we even have Christians thinking that, yeah, it's sin, I know it's sin, but it makes me feel good, so I'm going to do it anyways, whether I, I you know, you can fill in the blanks, looking at the wrong things, and engaging in the wrong things, and it doesn't hurt anyone but me, baloney, it doesn't hurt anyone but you. Sexual sin's a big deal today don't hear a lot of preaching on it because it hits too close to home and it's really awkward for a lot of people, including the preacher. But a faithful shepherd will warn his people to the dangers that are out there, amen? So I can't read this passage and not warn you of the dangers of sexual sin. Devastating. But it feels so good. It feels so awesome until you reap the awful consequences of it. Why are so many marriages broken? Why are so many relationships struggling? Why are so many men unable and women unable to even have solid friendships and relationships with the opposite sex? And, and what, what in the world? We treat sex like it's not a big deal and it is a big deal. It's a massive deal. Cuddle up to it. Think of the story when I was in high school, there's a guy a couple years younger than me, he worked in a, a wild game farm and he worked at the, the lions and tigers and everything else and he'd grown up with them so no one thought it was a big deal and he played with them and it was all fantastic until one day they found him with a, a two puncture marks on the side of his neck. And no one knows what, what, who happened. Well, the reality is he was playing with wild animals thinking they were soft and cuddly. Just not wise. Killed them. We do the same thing with, with our sexuality. We just play with it like it's not a big deal. And I wake up one morning with two puncture marks on the side of our souls realizing that We're dead. And do you realize there's a problem? Not just inside the church. Outside the church, it's inside the church too? a group called Proven Men Ministries commissioned the Barner Group to examine current pornography use outside and inside the church. You know what this, this study found not too long ago? It's a little bit outdated now, so it's probably even worse than that now. 64% of American men and 20% of women view pornography at least monthly. And for Christian men inside the church, that number is 55%. of all men believe they could be addicted to porn. I'm not naive enough to think that we have the most spiritual church on the planet, that this doesn't happen to us. Also, we're the most pure church ever. Uh, I'm not that naive. I know that issue exists right here in this room. Guaranteed. The warning from Samson is this, brothers and sisters. I say this Gently yet firmly, if you choose to let lust control and guide your life, men and women notice the, the pornography in the women's sense is getting higher as well. Notice this: if you choose to let lust control and guide your life, lives, it'll lead you to places that you are not prepared to go, and consequences you're not, you cannot afford to pay. Not me, it won't. It will. you. So many good things are happening, God must be with me. Look at Samson, so many good things are happening, quote unquote, as far as accomplishing his mission. Here's what sin does, especially sexual sin. It seems, seems awesome for a second, but there's awful realities ta- attached to it. Sin clouds my vision, it muddies my moral waters, and eventually it will control me and it will sink me. No questions asked. And yet God has something better for us. God has something better for us in satisfying every sexual desire that comes across our hearts. It's this word that we don't speak of much. It's called purity. Sex is a gift from God for our enjoyment. You know that. It's for our enjoyment. I was always taught when I was a kid, sex is is bad, it's gross, like don't do it until you're married. Well, that doesn't sound like fun at all. Like what? It's good. And it's right, and it's good for us, and it's joy for us, if you do it within the confines of which, if you engage in it within the confines of which God has designed it for. How has God designed sex for us It's gonna be most satisfying, most fulfilling? We get the most out of God's gift to us in the committed confines of a husband and a wife for life. Ooh, that's not culturally relevant. Remember they did what was right in their own eyes? but it was evil in God's eyes. This is right in God's eyes. Sex is not bad, but sex is not to be consumed like you consume pizza. Right context by God's design, you will find the life that God designed for you, and it's gonna be the satisfying life, and you'll find that your marriage actually thrives, and you'll find that your relationships are strong and solid. You'll find that, that God adds blessing to your life in so many ways, joy and meaning and fulfillment. This is some verses that God gives us about purity. 1 John 3, 2 to 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God, and because of this, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him like he is. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Purifies means like all across the board, not in every area, but one, everywhere. Then 1 Corinthians 6, 6 verses 18 and to 20 tell us this. We are called to flee from sexual immorality, to run from it. From we, we have those, see that coming in the room. We run out of the room from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins inside his own body. You are not your own. Don't forget this. You're not your own to do with whatever you want. You were bought at a price. What was the price? Oh yeah, it was the blood of Jesus. It was the Son of God dying for us that we could be forgiven for our sin and freed from the bondage of sin. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, it says, honor God with your body. I'm honoring God. Great, but honor God with our life, with our body. I know you're thinking deeply about this, and I trust the Holy Spirit is even probing your own heart because none of us are immune to this. None of us are immune to the sexual battle. I'm not. Notice I we use the word battle. Because it's a battle. So the calls to purity, the calls to offer our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord, but. I'm sure most of you get that, understand that, but what do you do if you're sitting here today and you've already messed up and you know you've messed up and there's no turning back? Like, what do you do? you have to know this about this whole battle of sexual purity, that it is a battle. You need to fight it every day, but you don't fight it with your own strength. You fight it with God's strength that he promised to give you by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Samson got his power to fight the battles, you get your power by the Holy Spirit who lives within you all the time to fight this battle, all battles, but specifically this one we're talking about this morning, to fight this battle. And know this. If you have messed up in this area, know this, that Jesus is strong enough to forgive you of your sin if you turn and ask him to forgive you. If you turn to him in repentance even right now and say, I know he's talking about me. I don't know who I'm talking about. You know if I'm talking about you. Just right now say, God, I know it's me. I know this is for me. Just stop right now and say, God, I'm sorry. I get it. I want to flee from this. I want to be done with this. Forgive me and empower me to live pure from now on. Know that God will forgive you of this. Satan was telling you, this is one sin God can never forgive you of. God will forgive you of it if you confess it and turn away from it in his power walk the other way. Notice this too, that Jesus is strong enough to deliver you from this sin, not just forgive you for for, for it, but deliver you from your sexual sins. In other words, you don't have to be end up like Samson, uh, ridiculed at the front of a place, weak and blind and poor and nothing. You don't have to end up like that. You can end up strong as God delivers you from the bondage of sin. Just say, "Just even God, God, help me walk in a different way. Give me strength. Give me people around me that can pray for me, that can spur me on in the right direction." God has the power to deliver you from your sexual sin. Now I know. Because 20 years ago, 22 years ago, he did that for me. And I've watched him do that in so many other people's lives. You have to also notice this. Jesus is greater than your sexual desires. Only he can truly satisfy you and give you the intimacy and satisfaction your soul desires. The glory of Jesus is much stronger than any sexual desire in our hearts. You can put aside your sexual desires and put aside all your inclinations that are wrong and pursue Jesus. You'll find greater satisfaction there than you will ever find in your sexual desires. Ever. Jesus is the only one that can truly give you what your soul longs for in that. Today's a day I pray it's a new day for many of us as we understand the life of Samson in our lives. Here's a couple things about God we have to get in this. There's so much more to this, but you only have 45 minutes, and man, I could preach like seven sermons on this. So go back and study and read and let God speak to you through this text. Here's a couple things we learn about God. Number one, or number three, number one about God is this. God's purposes will prevail in spite of me. God's purposes will prevail in spite of me. In spite of Samson, in spite of all that he was and all that he did, God still accomplished his goals. How many times have you ever thought in your life, well, there's no way that God could ever accomplish anything through me because I am such a screw up. Or I've done it this time, now it's, God's put a big X over my life and I'm like eliminated from his plan. Can I encourage you something, brothers and sisters? God's purposes will prevail despite you. Because that's how big and how great and how God is. That it's ultimately not even about you at all. It's about God. Here's the deal. None of us have it all together. I know we want to pretend we do. I know we want to tell our quote Bible verses and make, make the big spiritual big spiritual speeches and think we have it all together. Here's the bottom line: we are all as broken as Samson. You rip open your chest to the core and you don't find a big S for Superman back there. You find a big S for sinner. Reality is though that Jesus, when you accept Jesus in your heart, he has taken that big S stand for sinner. He's put a bigger S on top of that meaning saint. Saint. And he's slowly changing you from one degree of glory into another, into the image of Jesus Christ. But the true reality remains, even underneath the saint tag, that God looks at you now as a Christian, as a saint. He he accepts you as a saint, but the reality is, even beneath the saint, there's still the remnants of sinner in all of us. In all of us. And so we don't ignore it, we don't try and pretend that we don't have it, but we know this, God plans to use you and work in you and bless you in spite of the original stamp that you have on your soul called sinner. Child of God, know this this morning, your your mess-ups will never stop God's plans from happening. You can't stop God's plan from happening in your life. You physically can't, Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord, it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Job 42, 2, at the end of his wild and crazy life, here's what he says. I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Got no amens for that? We can't mess up God's plan for us. Amen, because I am a screw hop. As are you, unfortunately. But God is not. And so we can stop wallowing. We can stop wallowing and start worshiping God this morning. For his mercy and his grace and his goodness in our lives. We can stop walking with head held down. And we can look, stand up tall in hope and confidence and assurance that God is not done with me yet. I know that for certain. You don't have to have it all together to come to Jesus. You don't have to have it all together to walk with Jesus. You don't have to have it all together to be used of Jesus. That's how good our God is. Here's the last one. God's glory will be revealed despite me. God's glory is gonna be revealed despite me. His purpose purposes prevail in spite of me. His glory is gonna be revealed despite me. Ultimately, this whole four chapters about God empowering a sinful man to protect his own name and his own reputation. God is first and foremost throughout the Bible. He is first and foremost for what? For your life? God is for you, yes, but more than that, he's for his own glory. He's for his own name and he's for his own glory. Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God choose to use a man like Samson? Because we look at this story and we're like, wow, what a God we serve. He's the most glorious, he's the most powerful, his name stands above all, and he will reign forever. God is most, first and foremost, for his glory, and he will reveal his glory in your life, even despite your worst choices. Sometimes that's how God chooses to display his glory, as we make wrong choices because we're human beings, and then he redeems them for his own purposes. 1 Kings eight twenty seven. but God will indeed dwell on the whole earth. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. The glory of God is what he longs for. Isaiah 48, 9 to 11, God acts for his name's sake and his glory that he refuses to share with anyone else. God is for his glory and his name. He won't share that with anyone else. No matter what happens, God will not allow his glory to be stifled. In Samson's life, in your life, in our church, and throughout this whole four chapters, ultimately we see this, that God is gonna reveal his power and his authority and his glory to the world through his people by his design. By his design. Whether we like it or not, if you've turned to Christ and you've given your life to Christ through faith and repentance, you are now his. His. And now he works everything together for good in your life. And he's gonna reveal himself through your life in your best times and your dark times. Your life now exists. Your life now exists for the glory of God. I don't get it, but God chooses to reveal his glory through your life. He chooses to reveal it through my life. He chooses to reveal it through Samson's life. But you know who he most clearly revealed his glory through? The life of Jesus. Broken heroes. There's one hero that he reveals his glory through that stands like unlike any other hero in the Bible. And it's Jesus Christ, and with, through Jesus Christ, we see God's glory perfectly and and holy and fully. Ultimately through Jesus Christ, God reveals his glory to the world. Samson is ultimately a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Tim Keller points out for us uh, through Samson's story and Jesus' story. There's so so many similarities. That ultimately, Samson is pointing to Jesus Christ. Both were betrayed by someone, both were betrayed by someone who acted as a friend, Judas and Deliah. Delilah. Both were handed over to Gentile oppressors. Both were tortured and chained and put on public display to be mocked. Both were asked to perform although perform, although Jesus refused that. Both died with outstretched arms. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies yet both crushed their enemies. Samson brought down Dagon and his followers freeing Israel. Jesus brought down Satan freeing us from the power of sin and oppression and creating for us a life of opportunity and fullness of God's spirit. Both saved by themselves but while Samson was a horrible reflection of God. Jesus is the most beautiful and perfect reflection of God we will ever see. So we come to the end of this sermon, and what do we do? We look at ourselves and we're like, oh, God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We look at Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on my behalf that covers my sin and frees me from sin and allows me to know the presence and the Spirit of God, allows me to see truth of Scripture in a way that I can live it out, allows me now, God, to turn from my sinful ways and turn to Jesus Christ and live my life with him. Ultimately leaves us where we should be, worshiping God, worshiping his Son and glorying in the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning which is so alive and so active. Even this little kid story that we know so well coming alive again in our minds and our hearts. Father, would we not run out of here without missing the lessons you want us to learn? God, where there is pride, arrogant pride still welling up in hearts here in this room. Father, would you would you tear that down now by the power of Jesus? Would you allow, Lord, your spirit to infiltrate lives? and Would you allow pride to be forsaken today and a posture of humility to come before, before us? in this room towards your son. Would you open our eyes wide to the scriptures? Would you open our ears to hear your commands? Would you give us strength and courage to live by your ways? Father, would you, would you even in the person that's stubbornly proud here that won't turn their life to you, God, will you, will you in this moment break down those prideful walls and allow your spirit to move in and show them that there's only one way, it's through Jesus Christ, to live life and to live life eternal. May we not just talk about it anymore, God. May we truly be done with our pride. Father, I pray for those in this room that are struggling with sexual sin. I know they're here. You know they're here, God. We can't run and hide from you. Father, I pray that this message would not fall on deaf ears where hearts are pounding right now for they know that you are working. Father, would you just allow a spirit of repentance to come in? Would you allow them to forsake their ways which are killing them and are destroying them? Would you allow them, oh God, to choose the better way, the path of Jesus, the life of Jesus? Would you free some from bondage this morning in this area, Father? Would you keep others from walking down the path that they're tiptoeing down right now? Would you bring them back to the right path? Would you show us all your glory today, God, which is far better than any desire we could ever have? Our ultimate desire, God, you've wired us with is for you and you alone. Father, show us again how you are so good and so strong, so powerful. Show us again how you will work in our lives in spite of us. For those discouraged today, God, and saying you could never work again, remind them, God, you can work and you will work. They just have to humble themselves and come back to you and give themselves fully to you. God, for, for those that think that you could never reveal your glory through their lives, I pray you'd encourage them this morning. May we worship and not wallow. May we stand tall and not shrink back. May we leave here today saying, man, we serve an awesome God. There's no one like Jesus. I just want to live my life the best way I know how, for Jesus and for his kingdom. Anything else you want to work out in our hearts, God, may you do so. You are God, we are not. Just don't let us leave here, God, unchanged this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.